All right. Well, good morning again. Good morning to our brothers and sisters in Wilmington. It's good to have you all here today. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 4, it's one of the last books of the Bible. So uh, go almost to the end. Stop. I, I think I have a page number here for you. Page 878, if you're using ones in the seats. And while you're finding your, your way there, I'll ask you just a question to think about. What do you do? How do you test a new product? How do you make a decision as far as are you going to buy a new product when it comes out? This is the season for new products, right? They're going to all be showing themselves over this you know, next couple months. People want you to buy the new thing. They often uh, change old things and make them look new just to breed dissatisfaction. You know, I always wonder why do, with cars, why do they just change the taillights ever so often? It's to make me want a new car. So how do you, uh, how do you test a new product, a new idea? You know, you're watching TV land late at night and um, that commercial comes on for that thing that'll clean all the stains in your house. Are you the sort of person who's glad you had your credit card close because it's a limited time offer? Or do you have a, what sort of test? How do you know, if you know, like, that this is a, a scam? Like, my rule of thumb is if it's not on the, sh- the shelves at Target, it's not worth buying. Like, well, they can't make it in a real market, so they've got to be on TV land. I'm not sure that's right, but I'm just saying that's my test. Is well, If it's on a real shelf, maybe it's a real thing. When a new iOS comes out for your iPhone, do you put it on right away, or do you wait and watch your friends and test it out for a little bit? You know, make sure it doesn't turn your phone into a brick. How do you, how do you test a new uh, product? Going to buy a new car? Do you go on consumer reports and read all, look at all the dots, you know, see how well a car fares? Or whatever it is wise people do when they buy a new car, I don't quite know because I'm not one of those. I like the taillights. <laughs> I'll take that one. Uh, how do you test a new thought? In our, uh, probably the past 20 years, there's been some thoughts, cultural thoughts that have gone from extreme periphery to normative. It's pretty amazing if you think about it in our culture, how certain ideas were, as a child, were taboo or not spoken about and are now prevailing. Like, how do we test those? That is uh, the question that sort of is a, it's a leading question this morning in, in our time in John. John's, he provides oversight for churches, several churches in what you would call Turkey. That's sort of the, where the ministry of John was located. And it, from everything we know from reading the scriptures, and then also from what we know outside of the scriptures that sort of correlate, uh, 
it seems clear that there was a new idea rooting around the churches uh, that John cared for, and this new idea was threatening to um, cause real harm. And we have not been reading First John in a... We've not been studying holistically the book. We've sort of been taking three snapshots out of it. But if you were to go back and read First John from beginning to end with that in mind, you'd see it. You'd see, ha, he, there's a concern in the letter for this, this, this new idea. And, and this morning, we're going to spend a little time on it. We're going to spend some time on the question of how do you test a new idea before you let it into your life? Um... How do we process that? So let me read the first verse of the fourth chapter, and uh, we'll start to set out a little bit. You You can hear his concern right in the very beginning. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, don't believe every spirit. And he's not talking about ghosts, right? He's not, he's not saying test the spirits like uh, quiz a ghost. That's not what he's doing. He's saying test the spirits like, well, like if someone, this is church language, okay? Church language, when you feel very strongly about something and you, uh, you feel very convicted about something, you might say, I just really feel the Spirit telling me X, Y, or Z. We had a... I found myself laughing. It might have been... This is a dangerous one, but I I, I trust you can see the humor in it. When we went through the name change several years ago, um, you know, we said, hey, if you have any names that you're interested in or you think it might be valid, just like write them down and send them to us. There were about four people who came to us with names that were like, I think this is from the Spirit. And it was four very different names. It's hard to know, isn't it? Test the Spirit, he says. How do we test the Spirit? Because the truth of the matter is, anything that's going to alter the church is almost always going to come cloaked in the language of Holy Ghost talk. People, are, the church is internally, the church were fairly robust and, and, and strong against an outside idea. Just, it's the inside idea that is so duh, careful. And that idea will invariably be in the trappings of, I feel like the, the Holy Spirit said. So John is saying, he's not saying, oh, discount that talk. He's not saying, oh, no, the Holy Spirit doesn't work. In fact, It's quite the opposite. He assumes the Holy Spirit's at work, which is why he says, test it. Because not everyone who speaks is speaking from the Holy Spirit. And here's the test. We're going to spend some time in the test. Now, I I find this, this to me is is a a little bit of a a very hard length of Scripture as far as flow goes. Because John sort of migrates over over the next several minutes, you know, time together. John's going to sort of migrate and I think the best way I can say it is he's going to start with a concern for how you and I process the idea and he's ultimately going to end with how we live, how we just live. 
but he's never going to leave. He's sort of going to hold on to the whole thing the whole time. It, I think it's a little hard, and I, I think you'll feel the hardness here. But it starts off easy enough. Look at verses 2 and 3. How do, we, how do we know if a spirit is of the Lord? Well, this is sort of John's answer. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. He's saying if there's, if there's a new thought in the church, and that thought in the church, and John's dealing with a particular argument, but in general he's saying if that thought is not really tampering with the person of Christ, the story of Christ, you don't need to be so alarmed about it. He says, however, if the thought, if the thought of the Holy Spirit is tweaking Jesus or adjusting the story of Jesus, he says, it's not of the Lord, it's the, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. He's not being apocalyptic here, he's saying it's an anti-Christian thought. It's the way of the Antichrist. In John's time, the idea, as best as we can have it, is that there was an opinion a new teaching that was kind of pressing against the walls of the church that had some alternative ways of looking at Jesus. The alternative thought, this is not the right thought, but it's the the adjusted picture was that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. But that, they thought, the divine part of Jesus entered into him at some point in his life and traveled in this body like it was nothing but a vessel, until the crucifixion when the divine part of Jesus left. The divine part of Jesus, they thought, was not on the cross. It left. That was... Now, there's a lot of reasons why they might have felt that way. And I don't want to spend too much time on why they felt that way. I mean, there's the philosophy at the time had a strong preference of spirit over flesh, there's could be moral reasons for, for carrying that way, but the heresy that John was dealing with was saying, no, Jesus the man and Jesus the Son of God were not the same thing. They were very different. And Jesus the Son of God, the Spirit Jesus, entered in and left the body at certain particular times. He came in at the baptism and he left before the crucifixion. That's what he's dealing with, which would help you appreciate why he's coming here and saying, when someone comes to you with a new idea, scrutinize what they do with Jesus. And in fact, most new ideas in the church, just historically, have adjusted Jesus. Just ones in our own relevant time. Um, Jehovah's Witness adjusts Jesus. Mormonism has adjusted Jesus. They use him. They use the language. But if you scrutinize it, you realize, no, they're talking about a very different story. So while he's dealing with a particular problem, he... It's actually, in a general way, it's at the root of the problem. When something 
is coming against the church, the, the axe is going to go to the root of the tree. And the root of the tree is who is Jesus. And John says, watch out for that. It's interesting here, as he's saying watch out for that, he brings up this subject of the Antichrist. And it's worth noting that the Antichrist is a force that originates inside of the fellowship, not outside of the fellowship. Did you notice that? You know, I, when I think of Antichrist, I sort of think of like left behind books and the end of the world. And I, he's wearing all black and he wears sunglasses during the daytime. That's the Antichrist in my mind. He's slicked back hair. He uses hair gel. Uh, <clears throat> not this guy. The Antichrist that John's talking about, it's, it's, uh, or the anti-Christian force, you know, what, this movement afoot is actually starting inside of the church. And inside of the church, there's people who are adjusting the story, offering a new take on the story, de-emphasizing part of the story, or overemphasizing another part of the story. He's saying, that's the Antichrist. And it's not, it's not somebody saying, oh, no, there is no such thing as Jesus. It's not apparently an opposite at all. It's an adjustment to the story of Jesus that you and I know. It's worth noting here that John, John's implication is to change or alter the idea of Christ is to be against God entirely. He's saying that's the spirit of the Antichrist. You alter what the apostles have shared about Christ and you're in direct opposition to God. That's what he's saying. Now he's going to build on this in the next part. And I might say this is another part of the test. It's another way of looking at it. He's going to go a little bit deeper to the heart of things. <clears throat> Let me pick up in verse 4. I'll read through verse 6. Little children, he says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John's going to, towards the end there, five and six, he's going to give some rationale or some way to think. But on the way there, he gives a word of comfort. He says, listen, little children, don't worry. You win. We've overcome them. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. He's identifying with, I think, the spirit that can be in the church when there's a new idea that's coming against it. I can appreciate this. I can appreciate the feeling. Well, I guess you can too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things at present in this present age. There's a lot of things that we hold to be true uh, in the fellowship of God that are not popular outside of these walls. I mean, there's things, I, I imagine there's things in your workplace, there's things that you believe and hold to a scripture that you you might be careful to say because you know that you're either going to be branded a bigot or... Uh, some level of judgment's going to come on you. 
I mean, the world can have a, when, when will the Christian community just get with the times sort of pressure? Or um, you really still believe all that? You, I mean, have you ever felt like we're holding a book that was assembled by toothless nomads? I mean, that's sort of the, the way it's re- felt outside. And I, f- I feel like John is sensitive to that. It makes me feel like the church then is going through some of the things that we're starting to feel right now, which is the inherent antiquity and irrelevance as the story of God. That this thing that we hold on to is not applicable outside these walls. And John is sort of giving a word of comfort. He's saying, relax, we've overcome already. We've won. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't worry about this. You don't need to wake up and go, oh my goodness, is the church failing? He has overcome. And then, then he begins to pick up sort of the deeper, what's behind all of this? And he begins to point to their motivation. He says, they're doing this because they're not following God. People who, the, those who are coming out of the church, who are trying to tamper with Jesus, he's pointing to their motivation. He's saying they're of the world. They're not of the Lord. They're tampering because they're not actually looking for God. They're going after the world, and this story is uncomfortable to someone who's not looking for the Lord. And so they're making adjustments to it. That's sort of what's behind it. He's pointing at the motivation. He says, we're from God. Anyone who's content with what we have to say is from God. It's it's the sort of argument. Oh, it's a very unsatisfying argument if you're thinking of it intellectually. <clears throat> you know, when my kids don't want to do what I want them to do, I get the whys. Why do I got to do that? Well, why, why did I have to do that? I didn't have to do that yesterday. Well, he didn't have to do that. I did it twice already, and he only did it once. In your, you know, as a parent, you feel it. It's escalating. And eventually, why does he have to do it? Because I said so. Right? There's a, the question of authority comes in. That's sufficient. There is a little bit of this in here. John is, <clears throat> it's sort of a, there's an apostolic confidence, I want to call it, when he's talking here of, he's not frantically trying to do the a case for Jesus to prove that Jesus was who he says he is. He's saying, no. You need to know this. If someone's not content with the story of Jesus, it's because they're not looking for God. That's it. This is within the fellowship of believers. He's saying if there's someone in the church who's discontent and needs a new story or is trying to adjust Jesus, he says, it's don't worry about it. The problem is they are of the world. They're chasing after something else and they won't be happy until Jesus is altered. But the truth is, if you're really following the Lord, you would have, this is John speaking, you would be perfectly at peace with what I have to say to you. The narrative of God that we've received in Scripture should satisfy the soul of someone looking for the Lord. So as John looks at the outsider, he's saying, listen, when there's a new idea that kind of presses against the church, test it. And when you test it, scrutinize it. What is it doing particularly to the person of Jesus Christ? Is it messing with that? 
You should have your hackles up about that. He says, and when it is, know this, they're trying to leave the Lord. Don't, you don't need to worry about, is God innovating? Is this a new thing? No, what you have is sufficient. If you were satisfied with God, you'd be satisfied with what you have. It may not be a very comfortable defense, especially when we're not satisfied with the Lord. Now, in verse 7, John does something new. And I think the best way I can explain it, this to me is the hard part, is how does he switch from talking about them to, it seems like almost a new conversation about talking, now he's talking to the fellowship, how they ought to be. And I think maybe the best way that I can uh, appreciate or hold on to this is the conversation started a little bit intellectually. When a new idea comes in, you scrutinize the thought. And if they're tampering with Jesus, you know that there's a motive. They're actually, they're actually chasing after something in the world, right? When, when someone needs another book in the Bible, when there's another thought you have to staple to the Bible, when there's sort of a newfound way to express yourself that you've really found a lot of meaning to that's outside the Bible. What John's saying is, is you're living outside of God. There. After having said that, though, he now turns to the children of the church, and this is what he says. I'll just read 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this to me feels like a pretty significant departure from what we were talking about. We're talking about proofing a spirit, testing a spirit, and then there's this teaching of love. But what ends up following is what's, what I think holds it together. Listen as I read 9 and 10. I want you to listen to the text and I want you to think, how is John's rationale tied to who Jesus is? Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'll just keep going through 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect love is perfected in us. I think John is getting to the heart of things here. I think what John's doing and what the Lord's doing through John is pulling us away from, pulling us back to the heart of things. Okay, when there's a new idea, I'm an idea person, I'm a thinking person. It's quite possible if there was an idea or a heresy that was trying to take a life in the church I'd get out my slide rule and I'd draw straight lines and I'd make my arguments and my graphs and, and all, 
all of the defenses and there'd be this, it's, it's possible, it's possible for a community of faith even to be all about describing the truth with great clarity. And I think what John's doing is he's coming around to the fact of, you know what, at the end of the day, if you have God, it shows up in the way you love one another. That's the test. And furthermore, the way you love one another, and here's where it's linked, the way you love one another is intimately connected to the story of Jesus. What infuses the body of Christ to show love is what God and the Son did on our behalf. That's what he, that's what he said in 9 and 10. And this is the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only Son. He's, how do you and I know love? When he says God is love, how do we understand that? He says, I'll tell you how to understand it. I'll tell you what love is. This is what love is, that God sent his only Son into the world to be our atoning sacrifice, our propitiation, to come in our place. He says, that's love. That's how the community of faith, the community of believers, learn how to love, is by understanding that story. It's not, you don't figure out how to love by imagining how you're supposed to love the Father. He says, no, look at 10. And this is love, not that we love God, Stop trying to understand how you love God. He's saying, listen, let me tell you how God loves you. And that will change you. Think for a second. You know, these are, these are the sorts of facts that in the church we know, but we don't think about. I want you to think of the expression of love that is shown between the Father and the Son for Jesus to come and die for us. I mean, for one, for the Lord to describe himself as a father and as Christ the son already is already leading us in the path of saying, well, you know how this feels as a parent. Imagine sending your own son to die. And not in some kind of cruel way. The picture of scripture is not that the Lord is raising a knife to obliterate an infant, Jesus. That's not the picture. The picture of Scripture is a unified conversation between the Father and the Son who both know what needs to happen. Jesus came as much as he was sent. Jesus says, it's for this reason I have come into the world. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. So it's not like the father is saying, because I love the world, I'm going to kill you. That, that is an incorrect understanding of love. It's the father and the son. And I don't, you know, I've never been to heaven. I didn't, wasn't there when they were talking. But I, at least this sort of gets at it. It's the father and the son mutually agreeing, like, you know what needs to happen, don't you? Yeah. We need to do this. John is saying, think about that. Think that in the paradise of the union of the divine, there was a much enough love for us that they would break their own fellowship 
and that one would willingly go and that the other would willingly send. Despite all the love that was there, the father would willingly release the son and the son would willingly depart. In such a scenario that will ultimately resolve in the actual death of the son so that people who do not love God might see what love is. John says, that's what love is. You want to know love? That's what love is. And when you know that, you can love one another. Now, the re- one part of me says, well, this is an entirely new teaching. And the other part of me says, well, wait a second. This whole thing started with people trying to manipulate Jesus. If you tamper with that story, you tamper with the idea of love. You, you actually root love out of our faith. If Jesus doesn't die for our sins, well, then what did he do? What did he do? He came to be a good pattern of what I'm supposed to be. Well, am I supposed to be really, really nervous about that? Because I'm not, I'm not nearly as good as Jesus. So if Jesus just came to show me how to live, I need to know, am I in big trouble? Or does sin not matter? You see what happens the moment we say, well, Jesus doesn't need to come and die for your sins. If Jesus is not divine, if he's not the son of God, and that there was this other man, right? The man Jesus, but not the God, but the man Jesus did all of this marvelous and died on the cross for my sins. Well, I need to know, am I supposed to be thankful to God or am I supposed to be thankful to this man? It feels like I'm supposed to be thankful to the man. He's the one who did all the dying. But the passage says, God loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see how it matters? When we were in East Africa or West Africa, the Muslim community there, um, they believe that Jesus was a great prophet. They do not believe he was the Messiah. And so there's, a, there's a, an urban legend, a tradition that's at stake where they have an answer. They say Jesus did not die on the cross. Just as he was being hung on the cross, God pulled him away and substituted another person. Okay. Well, who is that other person? Because I need to thank him. Or, well, that doesn't sound very loving. And it certainly says that God loves his son, but God certainly didn't love that other guy. Do you, we don't like to think I, I think for most of us, we don't like to think that much about the personhood of Jesus and how it all relates. I think sometimes we get into that high sort of thinking. We think, ah, ugh, does it really matter? John is turning around and saying, your capacity to love one another the way God wants absolutely is dependent upon you understanding what just happened. He tells us in 11, uh, verse 11, or verse 12, excuse me, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. There's, there's, a, there's a teaching here. He picks it up later. A little bit later in 19, he says, listen, if you can't love your brother who you can see, how can you make the case that you love the Lord who you can't see? Right? John's command to us to love one another is because that is discreet. 
That's visible, it's measurable. There's something there. You and me loving the Lord is an abstract notion. Do you love the Lord or not? That's a hard thing. I imagine I'm not the only person who struggled through that. Do How am I doing, Lord, with my love for you? Am I even, are you even here? John is saying, listen, don't judge yourself on how you think you love the abstract God. If God's love is in you, you'll love your neighbor. It's very discreet. If God's love, if you understand what God has done for you, you'll love your neighbor. John's not creating a test. He's not creating a nervousness in the church of, I better go out tomorrow and love my neighbor or I'm going to go to hell. He's not doing that. He's telling you what will happen when we understand the love of Christ sufficiently. Which is why we ought to test the Spirit to make sure no one tampers with the person of Christ. It sort of all holds hands. I'll close with this verse. It's the fifth chapter. It's John's closing the book out. It's the 13th verse. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You want to know how if you have eternal life? If what Jesus did for you, the story of what Jesus did for you, if in your life you're not trying to run away from that, but you're finding a home in it, that's a, it's a good hint that you have eternal life. That you're not trying to adjust it, you're not trying to update it. Truth requires no renovation. If that's there, and as you know the story of Christ, and as you begin, you begin to gain a greater sense of what that love really was, and, and the amount of love that's come to you, that when you through your life and faith, feel that Jesus is your advocate, not once and not twice, but he's continually advocating for you before the Father. When you know that he is daily your advocate, you're going to love other people better. When you, The more you appreciate you're forgiven, you'll be able to forgive. The more you appreciate you're loved undeservedly, the more you'll be able to love undeservedly, naturally. And when you see these things happening, you can know you'll have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, there's things we're supposed to know and then they're supposed to move us. And then in the moving of us comes the fruit of obedience, like loving one another. And at any step of the way, Lord, uh, we confess we can get it wrong. We can either seek after the wrong kind of God, because we're really chasing after something else, Lord, or we can know everything just right, but not dwell in it, and therefore not show fruit of it, Lord. So it's our prayer this morning that you make straight the highway for God. That we would know you correctly, that we would want to know you And that through dwelling and understanding what you've done for us, Lord, the fruit of of real love might be seen.
in the way we care for others, especially this season, Lord. May that be our our very clear and practical prayer heading into the season. Lord, may your story, may what you've done for us move us this season to show unhuman love to others. Not just a little bit more. Lord, we're not asking for a little bit more love. May the larger-than-life display of divine love in the realm of human sinfulness, may when that becomes part of us, Lord, maybe this season, just sometime where something really remarkable would just come out of us that's only of you for the benefit of those around us so that they might be drawn closer to a God who is love. We ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name.